0: I invite you to take your Bible and open to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, this morning. Continue working through the book of Matthew. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, I neglect f- this Wednesday night. Uh, we're going to be studying the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is, I think, largely misunderstood. Lots of doctrines are misunderstood, but the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is one that has been really distorted in the last hundred years. So we're going to spend several weeks studying the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights. I invite you to come to that. Now we turn to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down one of the the interesting things we've seen in the last several years has been a, a, an incredible interest in Bible prophecy there's all of these conferences available an incredible number of books published on the subject of Bible prophecy there's a lot of interest in it and there's interest in it because Christians believe the Bible is the word of God that it's true And the Bible speaks to the future. The Bible speaks about the end times. One of the things that makes this issue difficult to study is the fact that the entire Bible addresses this issue. The Old Testament prophets to Jesus to the New Testament epistles and then finally in the book of Revelation, your last book in your New Testament. there's There's a lot of material in the Bible that addresses the end times Or the future. And if you take all of that material together, it's very difficult to harmonize. It's very difficult to harmonize that together. This morning we're going to begin studying in Matthew what Jesus says about this. This is a good place to begin that kind of a study. Because you're looking at the Gospels, which are of course before the Epistles chronologically. And we're going to see what the Lord himself says about the end times. Another issue that makes this difficult, as most of you probably know, is... There are numerous views and interpretations on the issues of the end times. Probably of any area of of theology, this one has the most varied perspectives. For instance, if you would just take Baptists in the 1700s, that's a pretty narrow group of people. Baptists in the 1700s believed things about the end times that almost no one today believes. Almost no one today. The same would be true of Presbyterians. The same would be true of most Christians living in the 1600s or at the time of the Reformation. What those Christians believed and how they interpreted these texts, almost no one believes that today. It's challenging. It's challenging. let's, Let's first, as we look at this, I want to remind you of the context. It's been a few weeks since we've looked at Matthew. So let me remind you of what's going on here. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has just come into the holy city of Jerusalem. Go back to chapter 21 of Matthew. Let me show you the context of what's going on. It's a context of rejection. Matthew 21, 15. This is Jesus comes into the city. So here is the the long-awaited Christ comes into the, the holy city of the Jews where the temple is and look what happens in Matthew 21, 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple Hosanna to the son of David, they we're indignant. And of course, they begin, to, they begin to lay out their plan and their conspiracy and their plot to put Jesus Christ to death. He then promptly cleanses the temple. The first place Jesus goes when he enters Jerusalem is the temple, the heart of religious worship. And he throws out the people that are there just for money, making money on the religion of God's people from the Old Testament. Then he curses the fig tree, which was, which was symbolic of Israel. Then he gives them three parables that essentially show how apostate and evil the current generation is and how bad the current spiritual leaders are and how God is going to to judge them. Look at Matthew 21 and verse 31. Matthew 21 and verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, now this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Drop down to verse 43, 21, 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Look at chapter 22 and verse 29. Chapter 2 and verse 29. This is when another religious group challenges him, very unwise to challenge the Son of God. Twenty two twenty nine. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So you see it's a, it's a context of rejection where the l- leaders of Israel, the spiritual leaders have rejected Jesus. Jesus responds by rebuking them and repudiating their false teaching. Look at chapter 23 where Jesus lays out all of these woes upon these false teachers. Chapter 23, look at verse 13. Matthew 23, verse 13. But what are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Then look at verse 33. Matthew 23, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Then the final decree of judgment. Matthew 23, 38. And as as you move into 24, and as you start to study... What Jesus says in Matthew 24, you need to keep this in mind. Jesus is essentially unpacking what he's talking about here. Look what he says in 23 and verse 38. And notice the the words he uses. See, your house is left to you desolate. The idea of being desolate is being empty. That every, your house, essentially your religious worship is like a desert. It's barren. It's left to you desolate. This is a statement of judgment. And obviously, Jesus' apostles hear and see these things, and it's going to prompt them to ask some questions, like verse chapter 24, they're going away, they're leaving the temple, and the temple is this complex of amazing buildings. It's just kind of like if you go into the big cities of America, you see these incredible pieces of architecture. It's what it was like for Jesus, where he's walking among the temple grounds, and the disciples point out the buildings. In one of the Gospels, they talk about how beautiful they are. I mean, these are amazing buildings, aren't they, Jesus? Look what Jesus says about the temple. Verse 2, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See what Jesus just said? This thing, this beautiful building, this temple, the religious center of Judaism, is coming down. In fact, it is going to be thrown down, which is a reference to violent military conquest. That's what this text is about. You can see it here from the very beginning. This text is about the judgment of God on the Jews, on Jerusalem, on the temple because they have rejected the Son of God. This temple, this religious center of Judaism that Jesus has exposed as utterly corrupt, it is coming down. Jesus goes on to talk more about that here. Notice the disciples are going to ask him, some questions in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, there's essentially two questions here. Notice, Jesus has now left the temple and they're on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is essentially outside the city and the, the Mount of Olives would provide a beautiful view, supposedly, of the temple ground, where the temple was. So, seemingly they're probably there on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple, it's very likely. But the disciples come to him privately, so they're away from the crowds. And notice their question, when will these things, plural, be? When will these things be? And, so here's the next question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, that question, I believe, indicates a misunderstanding on the part of the disciples, which you can find all through the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It seems like the apostles are thinking the destruction of the temple and Jesus coming to rule and to reign are one event or seem to be simultaneous. I think their question indicates that. When is this going to happen, namely the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming? I think they understand that as one event. If you read in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples are essentially saying, is now the time when you will restore the kingdom? And Jesus' answer is, it's not for you to know times or seasons, you need to be my witnesses. But what Jesus, I believe, is going to do in Matthew 24 and 25 is going to correct their misunderstanding. He's going to show that these events are not simultaneous, and he's also going to give them essentially the main Christian teaching about preparing for the end times, and that teaching is to be ready. While there are varied interpretations about how the events are going to take place, and we'll talk about some of those though we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, what is very clear from Matthew 24 and 25 is the main thrust from Jesus Christ is to be ready and there is going to be be a delay in his coming. That's one of the things this indicates. There is a delay in the coming of Jesus and in that delay, the followers of Jesus Christ need to be prepared and need to be ready and and need to do quite a, a few other things as well, like we'll see in this text today. Well, look. let's look at this. When, it, when he says the sign of your coming, that word coming there, almost always in the New Testament or very prevalently in the New Testament is used to describe this triumphant second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of the age, meaning the end of things as we know them. So we know history is moving toward an end. Look at what Jesus says in answering this in verse 4. And, and there's essentially a lot of events that are going to be played out leading up to the destruction of the temple. Keep in mind, we're talking here about the destruction of the temple. And there's going to be a lot of events that lead up to that. Look at them beginning in verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. So the first thing you see are religious imposters and messianic pretenders. There are religious imposters who pretend to be the Christ. And we've seen it all through history. We've seen in nearly every century of history, people claim to be the Christ. And claim this authority that comes with being Christ, the one sent from God. Jesus says that's going to happen. But he says, don't be led astray by that. The second thing you see is in verse 6 you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, that there, is, there, is going to be, there are going to be military conflicts. And, and essentially, obviously, all you have to do is look through ancient history. Ancient history is littered with examples of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now look what he says there. The end is not yet. So whenever these people on tv say oh it's another rumor of a war you know this is the end coming no that is just the normal progression of historical life in this world there's going to be wars and rumors of wars the end has not come yet and in fact he says to his followers don't be alarmed by that don't be alarmed by that what he says in verse 7 for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom I think that's a reference to political upheaval and turmoil. Again, characteristic of world history. Look what else he says. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Let me point you to Acts 11.28. Acts 11.28 says, One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Ever since Jesus spoke these words, there have been famines. Jesus is here describing... What would characterize the time leading up to the destruction of the temple? It's essentially what has characterized human history ever since the fall. That's the point of this. Human history is going to continue going on in its broken, distorted reality until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom. Look what he says there. There will be earthquakes in various places. Again, you can find that all through history. Verse 8, he clarifies. Now look at verse 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So you see the point he's making. What I try to explain earlier is there is going to be a delay in his coming. There's going to be a delay in his powerful setting up of his eternal kingdom. You're going to see these things. These things are going to happen. This is just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, this idea of the birth pains is a common imagery or somewhat common imagery, a few times, three or four times in the Old Testament, related to how human history is moving toward the end. This is just one of the ways the Old Testament talks about this progression of human history to the end. Listen to it in Isaiah 13, 6-8. Isaiah 13, 6-8. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be a flame. Jesus here picks up on that Old Testament language and essentially says, all this stuff you're seeing in the rising of nations against nations, the, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, in the broken world, those things are going to continue. That is an evidence of simply the beginning of a birth pain. That something catastrophic is coming. And here, this is just evidence that it's begun. Verse 9, look what else is going to happen. Look what else is going to happen to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9. Then, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. They'll deliver you up to tribulation. Now, here you find the word tribulation which in some systems of theology becomes a very important word. I would just say at this point you should look at the way Matthew uses this word. Matthew uses this word to describe essentially painful persecution or distress. That's what he's referring to here When he says tribulation. And here's the point. Tribulation is the normal experience for the Christian in this life. Tribulation, this word, is the normal experience for the Christian in this life. The follower of the Lord Jesus Christ will experience tribulation. You find that three times in Matthew. I'm going to show you one of them in just a minute. But let's go to Revelation chapter 1. John, the author of Revelation, also believed this. And writes of it as such. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Look at what John says about himself in Revelation 1 partner in the tribulation and the kingdom look at that in Matthew 24 Matthew is describing the normal course of life leading up to the end and for the Christian the experience will be tribulation they'll deliver you up by the way if you if you compare that with Mark and Luke they will deliver you up to synagogues which shows you Jesus is here talking about something that would be fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. When he says, they're going to deliver you up, he's talking about the apostles being delivered up to to martyrdom and to trial. Much of which happens in the book of Acts. Read Acts 4 through the end of the book. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. See, friends, there's the cost of taking the gospel to the nations. One of the costs. They'll hate you. Don't be surprised by that. Look at verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That's a reference to apostasy. When you're delivered up, when you're pressured because of persecution, many will fall away. Paul the apostle experienced this. If you're reading Paul's letters, you'll meet a guy named Demas. And Demas is a faithful colleague and learner Of the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ, faithful in many ways, seemingly taking part in missionary journeys. And then Demas forsakes Paul being in love with this present world. He's an apostate. He's an apostate. You also find this in Matthew chapter 13. Look at Matthew 13. These are the people that Jesus is describing here. This is the parable of the soils. Look at Matthew 13, beginning in verse 20 where Jesus describes four different responses to the word of God. Here's one of them, Matthew 13, 20. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Now keep that in mind. One of the indicators of this one is he endures for a while, and when tribulation, there's that word again, When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus says, as Christians are persecuted, many will fall away. They'll betray one another and hate one another. Look at verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And so it's happened in every generation of the church. Verse 12 And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That there is an increase, an escalating of disregarding the law of God. Lawlessness there probably means a disregard of the law of God, the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 13, evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the biblical picture of human history. It is an escalator down into deeper and further depravity, ultimately leading to the judgment of God mediated by Jesus Christ. And now we are going to get to some of the application if you look at verse 13. But in light of all that, all those distresses leading up to the destruction of the temple, which will be present with the people of God until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, given that, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures what? This. All this. Wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, betrayal, people committing apostasy, being delivered up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Saved. Jesus has made it clear to the Jews, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus has made it clear not one of these stones of this temple will be found. The temple is going to be so utterly eradicated that it's going to, the place is going to just be terribly decimated. And what should you as a Christian do waiting for that in the, in the delay for that to take place and then later the further delay for the return of, of Jesus Christ endure, which is the first point to be faithful to the end, be faithful to the end, right? Okay, we've got the the biblical exegetical work now completed for this morning. Now let's talk about how this applies. First, here's one thing about the the study of the end times. And one thing I wanna avoid in the next several weeks as we study this, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds in in the different interpretations of, of scripture. We're gonna do a bit of that But one of the things I I don't want to miss, and I don't want you to miss, is the teachings about the end times in the scripture are intended to affect the way you live. Just like any doctrine, what the Bible says about any issue like salvation or man or, in this case, the end times, is intended to change the way you live. And to spur you on to faithfulness. Do you see what Jesus just did? Leading up to the destruction of the temple, all this stuff is going to happen. Therefore, follower of Jesus Christ, the one who endures to the end, will be saved. You need to be faithful to the end. Friends, this is why when you think about prophecy particularly, and again, all this, in, this interest in that field of study, that, that prophecy shouldn't just spark your interest, it should change the way you live. It shouldn't merely be subject for discussion. It should call us to courageous faithfulness. And that's exactly how Jesus uses the doctrine here. Speaking to us, speaking to his followers, the one who endures to the end, will be saved. We as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been called, we've been called to be faithful to the end. See friends, the the Christian life isn't, the the Christian gospel isn't a call just to be saved and then that's it. No, the Christian gospel is a call to be saved and then keep believing, keep following, keep enduring. This call to endurance is all through scripture, particularly in the context of facing the difficulties this world will throw at us. The book of Hebrews is all about this. All through it, the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to, to people who are professing Christians Professing Christians who claim to believe and follow Christ, but they're being tempted to leave the faith. And the author of Hebrews calls them to persevere. Jesus, in light of coming apostasy and challenges and struggles, calls his followers to persevere. Let me read you a couple passages. Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 3.14. For we share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you've been born again? You keep believing. That's one of the ways you know. That's one of the ways you know. Friends, this call to endurance, this call to perseverance of the saints all through scripture and particularly with regard to dealing with the tribulation and struggles that comes through the end times. You find this in the book of Revelation. Let me show you. Look at Revelation 13 where John, in Revelation, is given a vision, part of which calls for Christians to persevere in light of the coming judgment. Look at Revelation 13.10. He's quoting Jeremiah here. He's quoting an Old Testament prophecy of judgment. And look at at the the point of this for Christians. Revelation 13.10. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Look at Revelation 14, 12. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Jesus calls for endurance. John calls for endurance under Trial, friends. I think this is one issue where, as Baptists, we've—I don't think we've taught well on this issue. At least in my history in the church, my life, my experience. And I think it's—I think it's true by and large in a lot of Baptist circles. We've not taught rightly and well the call for Christians to endure in the faith. We have taught—we have taught the biblical teaching that once you're born again, that is a status and a reality will not change. And I believe that. The person who's justified and born again by the Spirit of God, they will be saved. All those that are predestined will be glorified in Romans 8. So there's no attrition there. The question is, have you been born again? And the call to those who have been born again is to endure. And here's where I think we've gotten off in Baptist life. I'm going to talk about this a little more tonight. For a while, Baptists have looked at and looked for just a confession of faith as the evidence of salvation. And that is not sufficient. That is not sufficient. I don't think that's biblical. If you read the Bible, you'll, I don't think you'll find in the New Testament a person, because one of the things we wrestle with, rightly, have I been, am I saved? Have I been born again? You know, the answer to that is not, well, did you make a profession 50 years ago or 30 years ago? That's not the answer in the Bible. The answer is, are you believing now? Are you repenting now? Are you enduring? Here's where where we've gone off the rails. It's in a misunderstanding of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are not one-time actions. It's not like a one-time decision. Faith and repentance are continuing in the Christian life. Am I making sense here? For those who have been born again faith biblically and repentance biblically continue and that is the evidence one of the evidences that you have been born again that's what Jesus is calling them to here and calling us to in the light of a world that is crushing us in the light of persecution tribulation and apostasy you need to hold fast to the end in fact that word there endure could be translated hold fast be faithful to the end secondly Beware the danger of being led astray. That's how Jesus begins this. And again, this is where some of the the teaching on the end times stuff, I just think, again, is just way out out there. It's very practical. Look at how Jesus begins. Verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. We must be ever vigilant to base what we believe about every area of doctrine on the Bible, particularly the end times, knowing that different Christians will have some different ideas about that. But friends, here's the deal. When Jesus says, be careful that no one leads you astray, here's why it's so important that you know the truth. Here's why it's so important that you not play church, as some people do. Right? Just go for this one event once a week. Whatever, it's what I do. No, you the, the, the people who would be followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus warns us, don't be led astray. It's a sobering thing. Beware of the danger of being led astray. The next thing we learn from this text is to be prepared to endure persecution. Be prepared to endure persecution. Again, verse eight, they will deliver you up to tribulation. This is is the normal course for the Christian life according to the New Testament. This is simply part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the, the results of being a follower of Jesus Christ will be tribulation in a world. The whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. A follower of Jesus, very simple, clear teaching in the New Testament: to follow Jesus equals tribulation. It doesn't equal everything's going to go right in your life. You know, God's going to make everything good in this life. Quite the no, not no. What we look forward to in hope, where everything is made right, is in eternal. Is eternity not here? What we we face here is is going to be regular and probably relentless tribulation and the more faithful you are the more you will be persecuted very likely. That's why you know again Michael praying about looking for a new pastor. If we're going to find a person who's going to help train teenagers to be part of their work teenagers need to be trained to prepare for and endure tribulation and persecution. This, This is not a time just for playing games. We want our Teenagers to grow up and to be faithful, to know what they believe and why they believe it, and to go out into a world that if they're a follower of Jesus Christ will be their enemy. So we've got to train. And again, what, what church thinks about training teenagers for tribulation? Well, if it's a biblical church, we should think about that. Because that is the normal course of the Christian life for the one who follows Jesus Christ. Finally, be prepared for escalating evil in the world. Be prepared for continuing evil in the world. I think that's what Jesus is painting here. Leading up to the temple and beyond, there's going to be continuing, I believe, escalating evil in the world. This is the sad course of human history. It, this is the sad course of human history. Think about, think about when we live right now and what you've seen. Just, in your, just think about your lifetime. The world advances technologically, scientifically. And aren't we thankful for that? The world advances in technology. The world advances in science, in knowledge. The world does not advance morally. It does not advance morally. Quite the opposite. How do we use our technology in America? Oftentimes for depravity. And, and you've seen it. The Nazis are a good example of this. In their day and time, they were at the, they were the, the top shelf of military technology. On paper, the Hitler should have won World War II. Amazing providences of God superseded that. Hitler had the military technology. He also had the final solution, right? What's the solution to the problem of all these Jews? Technological scientific advances, the world does not advance morally. That's the world we live in. And that's why we need to proclaim the gospel which is the message by which sinners are saved, reconciled to God. Always the, the biggest problem and conundrum for the world. How can a sinful man be made right before a holy God who, will, who demands justice and judgment? It's only through Christ. Because Christ is the only one who came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, took God's wrath upon himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us, for everyone who would have faith in him. To trust Jesus Christ, and him alone to bring you to God. That's the good news of the gospel, that in a world like this, through Jesus Christ, you can and will be forgiven of your sin and you won't have this eternally or something much worse. You will have hope of eternal life with God in Christ. Well, I have an amazing wife. She's here this morning. I studied Roman history when I was in college and I always wanted to see the Colosseum. My wife, in a story that I'll abbreviate because she's way better than me, saved up a bunch of money and took me to Italy. And I got to see the Colosseum. It's worth seeing. You need to go. Right there beside the Colosseum, though, is this huge arch. And the Romans love to do this, right? They they love to brag on how powerful they are. So if you go to Rome and you get to see the Colosseum, right beside the Colosseum is this massive arch, almost as, as tall as the Colosseum is. It's the Arch of Titus. And if you go and look at that arch on the inside, you know what's on the inside of it? It's the Romans destroying Jerusalem. Because what Jesus says here specifically took place in 70 AD, where the Romans came in under Emperor Titus and utterly destroyed the temple and crushed Jerusalem, and Judaism as a religion disappeared. No more synagogues ultimately because of that decisive defeat and the Jewish religious way of worship which opposed Christ was eliminated by the Romans in 70 AD what Jesus said would take place did take place let's pray together God we thank you for the your word and uh, its power I do pray God we'd be stirred to Endure to the end, knowing it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. And God, that we would have a a renewed zeal to keep believing and trusting Jesus and him alone to bring us to God. We look to you as our only hope, Lord. And we have a great hope before us of eternal life, Lord, where all of us will be together, worshiping the lamb who is conquered. So God, help us to joyfully look forward to that and be thankful for that. And now sing in recognition of your greatness, O oh Lord. And, and sing in anticipation of that great day where, where our faith will be made sight. So Lord, now help us to sing and praise your name for you are worthy. And help us to leave, God, ready to, to persevere in an evil world and be faithful unto death that you would give us the crown of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We call you to trust Christ, to obey him. Let's stand. We're going to sing together. If you have questions about being a Christian, being part of the church, I'll be available afterwards. We're here to help you.